Welcome to Weber Wenzel Legal Insights. With over 150 years of experience and deep industry knowledge, Weber Wenzel is the leading full-service law firm on the African continent. My first instinct was um, not to take legal action. And I think it's a natural journalist's aversion to, to suing. Yes. Uh, we get sued, it's used as a weapon against us. It's not a tool we rush to use. Yeah. And, you know, quite frankly, I've got a pretty thick skin. Actually, so has Tandeka. But she convinced me mm. that we need to take action. Mm. And she was right. She was absolutely right. This is Weber Wenzel Legal Insights. I'm Dario Milo. This is the next episode in our series on media law, a field that I specialize in. Very much look forward to speaking about every week. Today we're going to look at the law of defamation, the area of law that protects reputation and dignity. I want to specifically focus on a recent case where we acted for two veteran journalists who succeeded in compelling the economic freedom fighters to retract and apologize for labeling them Stratcom agents. And to help me discuss this topic I have on the show today, the two applicants themselves, celebrated journalist, author, and economics editor at SABC News, Tandeka Kubule Mbeki, and the Caxton Professor of Journalism at Wits University, Anton Harbour. Anton is founder and former editor of The Mail and Guardian and former editor-in-chief of ENCA. And your professional lives intersected in the mid-80s when Tandeka joined the Weekly Mail, then edited by Anton as a journalist. Welcome to both of you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Tandeka, I thought that um, listeners might not be familiar entirely with the facts of the case that involved you and Anton, where you had a, a stunning victory in January this year. So it's probably necessary to understand the case, to actually go back in time some 30 years or so, when you were working at the Weekly Mail and you were investigating the Mandela Football Club. Perhaps you can tell us about that, because I think that's where the story actually begins. I was a student at WITS. I joined Anton in 1988. We were all activists on campus, and there was this little guy, um, Stompy Sepe, who mm. used to come and help us do it and rev up our protests on campus. This was during the second state of emergency, in particular, that I remember this young man from Tumahule in the Free State. Mm-hmm. I then joined Anton as an intern. They had started this newspaper. I admired the newspaper from afar, and I I, I dreamt of joining it, Mm. so much so that I actually remember the first interview, and Anton just laughed through the whole thing. I actually (laughs) remember even the little article I wrote for um, the exam. You know, it had... It was, I think it was very poorly written then because I hadn't yet been trained by them, but it, <laughs> w- it was something to do with the coup in the trans guy with Olomisa. And what so a very I, good memory from 30 years ago. It was so important to me to, to, to join the Weekly Mail. So my life from campus kind of spilled over into the newsroom. And we'd been hearing these stories about the football team and how it behaves in the, the Soweto townships and the area around where Mrs. Mandela lived. I got a tip-off 
that I have to go and fetch some affidavits yes. at the old Cheadle Thompson and Haysom. And I also had heard that Stompy has disappeared. I also thought maybe he's, he's been detained. Thinking that he's in jail also triggered me to say, okay, let me get into the story. Right. Let me try and find out how this um, little guy yes. is um, involved. So I remember it started off very lightly, you know, and then I went to see a lawyer, very prominent lawyer now, there was a, a religious group that was led by Sister Bernard and Father McCutcher just downstairs from their office. Mm -hmm. And they were also seized. They were members of the UDF and the South African Council of Churches, and they were seized with the issue of the disappearance of this boy. Mm -hmm. But when I got upstairs to um, the lawyer's office, I realized that that the story was much bigger than I thought, that the boys had been abducted abducted from Paul Verain's Methodist manse, right. yes. where he had a sanctuary for displaced children in the 1980s during the ungovernability period in our country. Mm. Then um, the, there was a lady called Bozo Falati who then participated in the abduction of these boys to Mamandela's house. Mm. And at the house, the events are described in those affidavits, and they are horrific. Right. And, and this was as an intern. You were an intern at that time. Well, I was a kind of a forward intern, yes. Anton, wouldn't you say? And he <laughs> had this habit of throwing us all in in the deep, the deep end. end. And we, that's how we learned. We all had one car, that van. and We were a very small newspaper, to yes. put it uh, mildly. <laughs> so somebody um, like Tandeka who arrived were thrown right into the deep end doing major stories from early on because we didn't have many people. But you had to hustle to get things like use of a car for a day to go do a story because I think we only had one. We had one car, <laughs> which we shared with the people who had to go deposit the newspapers and pick them up at the printers. That's right. And you taught us, you insisted that we learned how to drive in this van, the white van. <laughs> <laughs> That's correct. That's <laughs> correct. Because, you know, we, 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 we had to do newspaper deliveries as well as, as reporting. Well. <laughs> Goodness me. You did it all. Yes. <laughs> and um, but what a story for, for someone that young to, to actually get involved in. And, and you were describing what the affidavits revealed. Yes. So the affidavits revealed that Mandela was present. And the affidavits reveal a story of assault. And the affidavits were from the boys who managed to escape. Mm. Then I went back and I told Anton what's going on. And then I told Anton that I want to go and visit Paul Verain. So I had a friend called Audrey Brown who now works for the BBC. She and I went yes. and visited Paul Verain. And we found a crying priest. He was shivering, he was weeping, and he said um, he doesn't know what to do. Um, a rift has um, developed between him and Mandela and the kids at his house and the kids at uh, Mandela's yes. house. And he really is at a loss as to what to do. Yes. But he then describes events leading up to that day. And then he um, said that um, the best thing to do would be to speak to Kulso Falati. So I, I returned to the office again, told Anton, and then um, I went with David Beresford, 
to go and speak yes. to Boleswa Falati. Yes. Now the story was getting even bigger because um, now a, a, a rift had developed between Mamandela um, and Boleswa Falati, and then in came the name of Jerry Richardson. Right. Jerry Richardson, we didn't know at the time, but he later confessed um, at the Truth Commission that he was a paid apartheid spy mm. and that he did the work of Mandela, and he was central to mm. the work of the Mandela football team. In fact, he was the coach of the Mandela football right. team, and he was a known spy. His name was all over the affidavits that we had mm. read. Mm. So I had a friend then, because I didn't have a car, and I hadn't yet learned to drive like the others. And I said to Antoinette, I would go to every place in every place that deals with yes. dead bodies in Soweto. Yes. And so I had a friend at Reuters. He had a little red golf. His name is Rich Mukondo. Oh, yes. And so Rich and I, um, for days, two days, I think, went around every place. And then we finally decided after almost giving up to go to the Soweto mortuary. Mm. So we got to the mortuary. Um, it's a government mortuary. It's a grim building. It's not far from Paraguanath. And um, the cops told, well, the people who guard the mortuary told us, and the officials there, not cops, um, told us that um, there is a child in the drawer. So I asked them to pull out the drawer for me yes. and that he's unclaimed and unnamed and there was Stompy dead. So I said, no, this is Stompy. This is the person we're looking for. And um, Rich yes. was grossed out so he couldn't, he didn't like watching. He yes. didn't, so... Um, he couldn't, he couldn't look. He couldn't take it. Mm. And then he, he, he said, okay, mm. well, we found him now. Let's go back home. Let's go back to Johannesburg. So we went back to Anderson Street where mm. he dropped me at our offices and then I went and told Anton. You know, I think it's important to see the context. Yes. yes. Um, this is 1988-89. Yes. Sure. So Winnie Mandela was a heroine. She was mm. just hugely admired and to mm. suddenly come across a story mm. that was so horrifying mm. Was a shock to us, and it presented real challenges to us as journalists. Sure. You know, I think it needs to be said that Tandeka was showing enormous courage in pursuing a story that she clearly recognised was an important story sure. that would have very serious consequences. Yes. But apart from the fact that we had to deal with the fact that somebody seen as a hero um, um, was involved in these kinds of things. It was a situation in which the state was infiltrating, spreading disinformation. Stratcom sure. was set up precisely to entrap and smear people like Winnie Mandela. So we had to consider, A, we had to be very careful that we weren't being caught in such a situation. And B, we had the dilemma of saying, how do you handle such a mm. difficult story uh, in a way that, that that had to be told, but in a way that doesn't just do the work of Stratcom. So there were a number of stories then that, that began with that story that were critical yes. of Ma Mandela and um, that no doubt, as we know from subsequent events, caused her not to think very highly of, of you and of, of the, the Weekly Mail. Mm -hmm. um, maybe then, to fast forward about a decade, 
when the truth and reconciliation hearings happen, mm. um, that's when you get named as being a Stratcom agent or associated with Stratcom or working with Stratcom for the first time. Can you explain explain that? Tanika? Oh, um, during Mama's testimony, there were nine days. There were supposed to be fewer days, but the testimony was lengthy and intricate. So the Truth Commission extended the number of days. On the last day, the evidence leader for the Truth Commission, Dumisan Zabenza, mm. was leading her testimony. And she said that she thinks that um, myself, Tanega Kobun, Noma Vendam Tiani, and Tamim Kwanasi, Tami worked with us at the Weekly Mail. Um, we're doing the work of Stratcom. Yes. Well, then, Dumisa Nzebenza then said, Is, does she have any evidence of this? She said, no, she has absolutely no evidence. It's just what she thought, given the happenings of the time. Right. Then she was asked extensively about the fact that um, Jerry Richardson who led her football team was a self-confessed apartheid spy. And she said she had no knowledge of that fact. Then again, she was told by Dumisa Nzebenza very clearly that he has received the list of journalists who worked for Stratcom. And the names that she had mentioned, Tandegar Kobole, Noma Vendam Tiane, Tamim we're not on that list. This is the infamous list of 40 names. The list of 40 mm. names. They, that was given to Dumisa Nsabenza according mm. to the record of the Truth Commission. So I don't understand how when you're told that these people are not Stratcom, you can later, yes. in very inconvenient circumstances, repeat the Stratcom yes. allegations knowing full well that... There's no evidence they, for it. That, in fact, there is evidence to the contrary because the, 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 the Stratcom leaders were at the Truth Commission. They provided the list of 40 leaders, yes. 40 members of Stratcom who were in the press, and no weekly mailer was on it. It makes it quite bizarre against that background. Winnie Mandela then, in um, her interview with Huffington Post, um, repeats this allegation against you specifically, but now also brings in Anton. Anton, maybe you can pick the story up there because that really is quite proximate then to the decision to institute legal proceedings. So what happens is that a film is made about Winnie Mandela. Not a very good film, in fact. Um, my honest view is quite a disgraceful film yes. because it doesn't deal honestly with uh, these allegations and purports to put everything display everything negative about Winnie Mandela as a Stratcom strategy. Mm. Um, and I was interviewed for that film. Mm. Um, and in fact, my interview was very dishonestly edited. I had spoken about what an extraordinary hero Winnie Mandela had been, what an extraordinary voice she had been in the 70s and 80s. And then I said, but, and talked about more recent tragic events mm. of this sort. And the editor cut everything from the bat. From the bat. Yeah, so I've complained bitterly about how dishonest it is. But at the launch, Winnie Mandela gets interviewed by Huffington Post. And in that interview, she says, I was surprised to see Anton Harbour say what he said in this film 
because he and Tandeka, Kubule and others did the work of Strachtom. That interview resurfaced. Um, in fact, I don't even, I think surfaced. Um, For the first time, I think, yes, I think you're After right. the death yes. of uh, Mama Dena, and Huffington Post scrabbled around, found this interview. It was possibly the last interview and they put it up without even looking at it and considering what was on mm. it. And the Citizen newspaper picked it up and put it on their site. I very quickly complained to them and insisted they withdraw it, they apologize. And in fact, we negotiated the exact wording they would use to say there was no evidence yes. to back this whatsoever. And they did that quite swiftly, at least um, in their defense. They did. Yeah. They did. Amongst many other flaws, of course, they didn't even approach you for a right of reply or you, Tandeka, which is one of the ingredients of um, responsible journalism. But then the EFF, about a week after uh, that um, interview was made public by the Huffington Post, published the tweet that causes all the trouble insofar as the litigation is concerned. And it was headed, EFF condemns Sanef's silence on Stratcom revelations. It refers to the interview with Winnie Mandela that Anton's just described. And it says that she had mentioned my two guests here this morning um, and uh, as um, people who have worked for Stratcom. And Dr. Nglozi, who was the EFF's then spokesperson in a later tweet, mentions Anton and says, who are the 40 journalists? Who are these journalists on the list? What was Anton Harbour editing and writing about before 1995? You know, really to both of you, what were the consequences of, of this tweet? Because of course the EFF is a very powerful organization in South Africa and has a massive Twitter following. Were there any real world consequences as a result of this publication? I have young daughters, one of whom had joined the EFF um, at Grahamstown. And I respect her, her mm. right to decide um, about her political affiliations. And I, I was eager to, to dissuade her from believing anything her new political leaders believed. So I was very clear that I was never going to let it go. But secondly, as a journalist, all you really have is your your credibility. Yes. My first instinct was um, not to take legal action. And I think it's a natural journalist's aversion to, to suing. Yes. Uh, we get sued. It's used as a weapon against us. It's not a tool we rush to use. Yeah. We, we rarely would only use it in, 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 in extremis, mm. where all other avenues to, to rectify the situation have been have been used up and you know quite frankly i've got a pretty thick skin actually so has tandeka but she convinced me mm. that we need to take action mm. and she was right she was absolutely right we first tried to get them to withdraw mm. and apologize obviously one would prefer that than um, pursuing legal action sort of the Huffington post route that would have been preferable of course yes. no question mm. But they, they, they showed no willingness to, um, to qualify or regret or withdraw sure. anything they'd said. So it really set us on a path of legal action. And I was going to ask, so I'm glad you addressed it, this irony really in, in some ways of journalists suing for defamation and, and succeeding in circumstances where 
as we know, many lawsuits for defamation are brought by scoundrels who want to silence the media um, who are criticizing them. But of course, as you say, Anton, I share that view. This is certainly um, a completely different context and, and an extreme, in many ways, an extreme situation. And Tandeka, you've explained why from personal, but also more than just your personal reputation, reputation of the profession and your credibility had to be dealt with in some way. And they were, they were trying to silence journalists. So it was being that, that kind of vitriol, that kind of disinformation, that kind of ad hominem attack was deliberately being used by various political forces around the world and here to try and intimidate and sure. silence journalists, particularly women journalists. Sure. And I mean, Ferrell has written about this hephagy, about how the chilling effect was even felt by someone of her stature and yes. her experience. So, I mean, that's, that's a real consequence of this, these kinds of campaigns. So I think that forces one to draw a line. It's not just people being rude to you. It's drawing a line saying um, you can't just make loose and wild allegations and we're not going to be intimidated by it. So it's an important political step in the protection of journalism and free speech as well. I mean, that's right. And, and of course, from a defamation perspective, the EFF had no defense. Uh, we saw that in court because they, the only defense is once you have defamed someone. And although they try to argue that this wasn't really defamation, they weren't really casting aspersions on you, the judge saw right through that because it's, it's obviously defamatory of you. Um, and the only defenses then become truth and public interest. There was no truth to this at all. Protected comment or fair comment. And these are not comments or, or, or expressions of opinion that they, they, they are um, expressing. They're making a statement of fact. Or certainly for the media, reasonableness, which is that you've taken steps in your process to verify the accuracy of what you're doing and you've done your best to verify the truth and of course they didn't do that either although the judge said anyway in an interesting aside that that defense wouldn't have been available for them because it's only available for the media which is currently a debate raging in in our jurisprudence and we needn't necessarily detain ourselves with that here they also said certainly in their letter responding to us that well all we were doing was repeating what uh, Winnie Mandela had said, and, and that that is not something that's actionable. And of course, that offends against one of the critical rules of defamation law, which is that if you repeat, you step into the shoes of the originator. It would be far too easy to be able to say, well, I didn't say it, it was Winnie Mandela who said it, so your, your remedy lies with her. Mm. It brings me to one, though, one point where um, Judge Madiba, whose judgment we'll unpack um, in a moment, uh, criticizes both of you. And she says, you know, well, and it's in the context only of mitigation of damages. So she says, you know, you've sued for damages. I'm not going to give you as much as you would otherwise get from a damages pers perspective because you should have taken action earlier. And the fact that you didn't sue Winnie Mandela, for instance, when these um, allegations were made, or you didn't sue more swiftly the EFF after their April um, 2018 tweet, means that you should be awarded less, that the, the damages you should be awarded should not be as extensive as they otherwise would be. Tadeka, what is your response to that criticism of, of the judge? Well, there are two criticisms mm. um, contained in, her, mm. Um, mm. in the order, in the judgment. The one of tardiness, I can accept, mm. that we should have um, brought the matter on an urgent basis. Mm. I didn't know that that was mm. entirely available to us. 
for me. The matter was settled at the Truth Commission. It was said to all the millions of South Africans who watched the Truth Commission and who relied on it to make judgments about the future of the country and how we were all to proceed and who did what during the apartheid years. It was made very clear to her by Dumisa and Zebenza that these three people were not Stratcom. So you and had that been vindicated has been in a way, list. yes, already in that process. Yes, so it would seem petty, having been vindicated on such a huge public forum, on those um, allegations. Yes. The the repetition of the the false defamatory statements was I only became aware of it after her death because it was only uploaded by Huffington Post after she had Correct. passed on. Well, that's right. I mean, and certainly on the urgency issue, I must say, I found that quite surprising because had we gone urgently, I can assure you that the very first point the EFF would have taken is that this isn't a, a, an, urgent. A, an urgent matter because before the Trevor Manuel case and then the Derek Hunnicombe case, which actually came, although the judgments came before yours, were instituted after yours, before those two cases, um, it was not very clear at all in our law that you could go urgently for this kind of relief. Mm. In fact, it wasn't clear that you could even go for this kind of relief in a motion, which is a paper case, affidavits, as opposed to trials. But I'm, I'm quite encouraged that she says that for future cases, she seems to accept that an urgent application would, would have been warranted had you acted swiftly after the tweet. Mm. But as we say, she says, not a shred of evidence has emerged in 20 years against either of you. There's no truth. It wasn't reasonable. She grants um, a, a series of remedies which we had all which we had asked for. Um, Anton, were you happy with those remedies? Declaration of falsity, apology, retraction, damages. I mean, and especially in light of the fact that the EFF actually did apologise, which they haven't done in in some of the other cases that we've been involved in. That's correct. Their apology uh, one liner at three in the morning was ungracious. Yes, and uh, showed a pettiness, I think. Uh, but they did do it. Yes. Um, so, yes, I thought the remedies fulfilled what we'd hoped to achieve in this court action. Yes. And let's talk a little bit more about damages. Is it a case about the money, Tendek? I mean, I no. remember when you first consulted me, both you and Anton said it's not about the money. We made that clear in court as well. No, it wasn't about the money. It's interesting for me that the EFF also didn't make it about the money. Yes. And... Um, I think they knew that it was never about that. Last question to both of you, and, and it's this, that, you know, this was quite a novel case. It's a stunning legal victory. Um, it's, it's vindicated your reputations. It's hopefully served a, a larger purpose of, you know, addressing disinformation through defamation law. And, and as you both said, you know, disinformation around the world is being used against journalists. You know. Are courts necessarily, though, the best places? They, they were the only place you could both turn to, really, because the EFF is not subject to a press council or something like that. But are they the best places to, to be resolving these kinds of attacks on journalists? Well, one would prefer mm. quicker, mm. quicker remedies. And, uh, but, uh, but in the end, if people won't apologize and won't withdraw, um, you, you, you have no option but the courts, and the courts are acting, I'm pleased to say, to defend journalists in this way. So it's become a very important um, a remedy and protection. I wish there were mm. 
other methods of, I mean, I think in, 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 you have to say we live in an era where we're all grappling with disinformation, hate speech, abuse, particularly via social media. So we all have to be putting our minds to whether there are more effective ways to deal with it. Uh, certainly, I believe that we have to push the owners of the platforms, Twitter mm. or Facebook or Instagram, to take responsibility for their content. And they should be forced, I think, to exercise the same responsibilities that any publisher has to do. They're not just a platform, they're a publisher. And so I think it's very important that we have a debate mm. about um, uh, they, they are reluctant, but forcing them mm. um, politically and legally to take responsibility to stop the spread of disinformation, abuse, hate speech, etc. The law is there and it's helpful and it's been useful up to now, but I think only part of the puzzle in solving this, this problem. That's all the time we have for today. I'd like to give a very warm thank you to my guests, uh, Tandeka and Anton. It's been a fascinating discussion. This has been Weber Wenzel Legal Insights. I've been your host, Dario Milo. I'll be guiding you through the first season of podcasts on media law. Our executive producer is Paula Yoens. This podcast is produced for Weber Wenzel by volume. Until next time, publish responsibly. You have been listening to Weber Wenzel Legal Insights. You can find and subscribe to the podcast on all major platforms. For more expert legal insights and updates, visit WeberWenzel.com.